Hey, Forge family. Last week we were together in the fourth chapter of 1 Thessalonians in which the phrase, quote, For this is the will of God concerning you, your sanctification, unquote, appears. A hundred percent of us, the brothers and sisters, have come to that text to discover what the will of God is for our lives. Do I study medicine? Do I marry this man? Do I plan on being a missionary? The answer from Scripture by Holy Spirit is that His will is that we be holy. As in, first things first. So in the being set apart for our intended holy purpose, Paul called the Thessalonians and the Californians and all of Ford's church to sexual purity. And no, there are no, quote, what about this exception over here, unquote. Holiness makes us into being like him. Immorality makes us like the adversary. Then Paul warned about defrauding one another. Simply put, raising unrighteous longings, out of place and time longings, inappropriate longings, and sinful actions that will produce guilt and shame, both in this life and when we, when we stand before him in heaven and the books are opened and our lives and choices are read out. Lastly, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians to make it their ambition to live a quiet life, to not stand in the marketplace and shriek out about their faith. When I was a student at Berkeley, there was a preacher called Holy Hubert who would stand on the sidewalk just outside Sather Gate, the entrance to the campus, where there was a steady flow of students and faculty, homeless and hippies, and he would shout at them, he would harangue them about Jesus. Seemingly for him, the highest accomplishment was to argue with someone about their lack of faith. That is not aspiring to live a quiet life. Paul finished by saying that the Thessalonians were to work for their keep so that they had a good reputation among those outside the church. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you know us and our ways. You intercede for us constantly before the Father. You sent Holy Spirit to empower us to choose holiness. So, Lord, we choose to step away from our flesh and its ways. Lord, we were so changed when grace came to us. We choose to sever that contact and indeed worship you and say thanks to you, wait on you, listen to you, for Rhema, you know, for those now words and leading, and to listen to the scriptures. We embrace your promises. Strengthen us as your servants in Jesus' name. Now, open your Thessalonian texts here. Today we're going to be in chapter 4, starting in verse 13. And Paul wrote this, quote, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Paul now shifts to a doctrine of hope that the enemy has obscured, blurred, and lied about in his great fear and knowledge that Jesus will keep his promises. Paul wrote that the missions team did not wish the Thessalonian brothers and sisters to be ignorant of great truth uninformed of great promises. 
Yes, the ecclesias were expecting the imminent return of Jesus for them soon, any day. But the ecclesias were perplexed about those in the fellowships who had died. We do not know the nature of their death. By persecution and martyrdom, by disease and old age, by accidents, no one knows. Jesus was the one who used the metaphor for sleep in John 11 to describe Lazarus, his friend, when in fact he had died. What we do know from the rest of Scripture is that the righteous dead, both in the Old Testament and the New, passed from life to life, from the natural to the spiritual, from earthly bodies to soul and spirit life in paradise, awaiting the resurrection. The prophet Daniel affirms such a transition. The account of Lazarus, the beggar, and Abraham's bosom affirms this. Paul writes, quote, absent from the body, present with the Lord. The righteous dead, in whatever state their bodies are, they're secure. For big parts of the of millennia past, there were fears that if you drowned at sea, you were cast into a mass burial pit, or you were burned, your body was burned up, and not interred in holy ground next to the parish church by a priest, a vicar, a rector, a reverend, whoever, who did the rites. Then there was great doubt about your bodily resurrection. That was unnecessary fear. The Lord, the Creator, knows you to the level of subatomic particles that have never been destroyed. And he can, at a word, call your deceased body back together for the purpose of bodily resurrection. And we know this with certainty because Jesus himself died and was bodily raised. Paul writes to the ecclesias of the coming resurrection of the righteous dead so that they will, they will not grieve over death as do those who have no hope. Such were the multitudes of the known world at that time. The Gentile world, the Romans and the Greeks, the barbarians, they had no hope after death. The Gentile world was distraught to the max over death, leaving them with grim hopelessness. Aeschylus wrote, once a man dies, there is no resurrection. Theocritus wrote, there is hope for those who are alive, but those who have died are without hope. Catullus wrote, when once our brief light sets, there is one perpetual night through which we must sleep. One surviving letter written on papyrus speaks of the utter emptiness of death. Quote, Irene to Atanaphras and Philo, good comfort. I was as sorry and wept over the departed one as I wept for Didymus. And all things whatsoever were fitting, I did, and all mine, Epaphroditus and Thermuthion and Philion and Apollinarius and Plantus. But nevertheless, against such things, one can do nothing. Therefore, comfort ye one another. Surrounding the Ecclesias were swirling philosophies of reincarnation in one form or another, all urging mankind to an unknown future. Here, Paul begins to answer the fears of the churches. In verse 14, he says, For, 
if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Now remember the Last Supper in the upper room where Jesus assured his disciples that, yes, he was going away, but that he would, and then he would prepare a place for them all and that he would come again and receive them to himself so that they would be with him. Here is where that rubber meets the road. Without the death of Jesus, there is no resurrection of Jesus. And without his resurrection, we have no hope either. But praise God, we too will be resurrected if we have died in Christ. His death was for us. So too is his resurrection. Just because the Thessalonians believed in Jesus Christ, that was not doctrinal footing. It is the reverse. Because of the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, revealed as the Christ, the Thessalonians have been taught and drawn to him so as to trust him and his promises. Paul continues in verses 15 to 17 with a fresh word from the Lord. For we say this to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Nowhere in Scripture is there any passage from which Paul is quoting. Scholars have pondered two possibilities. First, that there had been a teaching of the resurrection of the dead out of the mouth of Jesus, but not written about, not recorded. It would then be known as an agraphon, and it would then have been passed to the church as oral tradition. My opinion, that's called spiritual speculation. The second possibility is that the missions team, and Paul particularly, had received a fresh word from the Lord on this matter. Or perhaps it came to Silas, who was a prophet. The probability of such a word from the Lord is foretold in the Upper Room Discourse in John 14, that the Holy Spirit will teach us all things. Continuing, the Lord then sets the order of the rapture, that the dead in Christ will rise first. The stage is set for this rapture of the ecclesias with the phrases and the images of the Lord descending from heaven with a great shout, with the voice of the archangel and the blast of the trumpet of God. Now, it is heaven invading earth's atmosphere. Now, let me be clear here. We previously studied the second advent of the Lord in Zechariah, in which the Lord will descend, and when the feet of Jesus Christ touch the Mount of Olives, it will split and shift, creating a valley for the faithful to flee from Jerusalem. These two events, the catching up, literally the seizing and carrying away of the dead and the living into the heavens to be with Jesus, known as the rapture of the church, is not the day of the Lord, the second advent, when Jesus returns in power to reign. See, there's a time gap here. Paul will get to the second advent in chapter 5. 
Here, the focus remains on the question, well, what happened to the dead in Christ? They will be resurrected first. And any who live and remain in Christ will witness that prior to their being snatched away as well. Imagine the dinner plate-sized eyes of those who heard First Thessalonians read to them for the first time. All the saints, whether dead or alive, will be raised and changed. First Thessalonians 4.17 is the only explicit New Testament reference to the dead and the living believers being raptured upward into the air when Christ comes from heaven for his bride. Verse 18 is the instruction of what the Thessalonians were to do with this revelation. They were to encourage one another to, one another to stand up and to stand apart from any ungodly belief that included grief and discouragement at the death of one of the brothers and sisters. All right, Forge family, the logical extension of that question about the saints who have gone to sleep in Christ deals with the question of what happens to our loved ones who don't know Jesus or who have turned away from him. Only the Lord knows the state of their spirit. As long as there's life, he is working. My father-in-law, wrapped in the arms of my wife, Janice, passed away. The monitors went flatline. The nurses came in and nodded. Doctor came in, made a note. And Jan just, just hung on to him, thanking the Lord for what her daddy had meant. And it had been a very awkward, difficult life part of the time. And then after 15 minutes, the monitor started to click and beat and thump, and he was back. His heartbeat, his brain functioned. He woke up and he said, where was I? And for the next 12 hours, his countenance was changed. He prayed with Janice. They read scripture together. And all of that after he was declared dead. And then he passed. Here in the San Francisco Bay Area, we're surrounded by those with no hope. Let your hope flow outward. Yes, it sustains you inwardly, but let your hope flow outward. Let it be demonstrated to others. They may have dismissed you in the past, but today's headlines are different. Today's heartscapes are different. There is much fear and denial in the marketplace. Let's ask the Lord for opportunities to display our hope of being raised and changed. Let's pray. Lord of the resurrection, thank you that we will forever be with you. We choose to lay grief and depression aside in regard to the death of the saints. We have great and mighty promises, all coming from you as we wait for the day of your appearance in the heavens to claim your bride. We long for the day when our lost family members, our lost neighbors, and the masses of those without hope come face to face with a revelation of Jesus calling out to them to come to him in the land of the living. He comes to offer transformation from death to life, from grief to hope. Bring that soon, Lord. 
Get us ready for the harvest. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, Forge family. I love you. We'll see you soon.